Part four of Bazaar by Lord Macaul. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Putting pedagogy across. There is much well-meaning propaganda in progress for the preservation of professors. Alumni are appealed to. Bankers are buttonholed, and in every college club the diagram showing the big game play by play is being replaced by a dial showing how many millions have been garnered to date for the fund. All this in order that the saying live and learn may be reversible as be learned and yet live. Wouldn't it be more humane, instead of giving the professors money to which they are not accustomed, to teach them how to sell themselves? Today every one is paid according to how completely the public or the plutocrats are sold on him. Only salesmanship can save the scholars. The time is ripe for some gilt-edged grad, such as Martin K. Mung, president of the Newark Noodle Corporation, to announce, when stalked by the subscription squad, no gentleman of the adopter professor committee, your suggestion that by donating seven cents a day I keep an instructor in paleontology from starvation, or be godfather to an authority on Sanskrit at eight cents, strikes me as impractical. With the cost of living rising again, next year they are what nine and ten cents and you see the position that would put us in no gentlemen i'll do better i'll solve this situation once for all by loaning my general sales manager mr blatt to dear old v hauken for two months and he will give the members of the faculty the same tutoring costs he gives the men we send out on the road within a year after they leave his hands, these same profs you have mentioned will be writing success through Sanskrit, and how I made my pile with paleontology for the American magazine. At the conclusion of this loyal speech, the committee would give a long cheer, and depart checkless, but with a new vision. And sure enough, the pale pedagogues would emerge from Mr. Blatt's snappy seminar simply exuding system. They would possess the power to meet men, the personality that wins. The baratory recluses would burst forth primed to impress with bigger biology. Contains more bunk. The Sanskrit savant, formerly threadbare, but now a nifty dresser, would immediately hop a train for New York and breeze into the office of Hugh G. Wads senior member of Wads and Wads, and chairman of the trustees of Vihalkin University. Good morning, Mr. Wads, he would say aggressively. I've come here this morning to talk Vedas. Vedas? I don't get it. Never heard of such a stock. It isn't listed on the big board, and if it's traded in on the curb, the dealings must be pretty small. Besides, I thought you were a professor at Vihalkin. Right. I am a professor if you choose to put it that way. Technically, though, I'm a promoter, and my proposition is Vader's. Trademark, copyrighted, 2000 B.C. Vader's, I still don't get you. Ah, that is precisely why I'm here. I was sure you would want to know. Cigar? Well, Vader's are the wisdom songs of India. Mellow by forty centuries in the parchment. One hundred percent Hindu, classy yet conservative, noble yet knobby. You know what caste is among the Brahmins? 
Well, that's ex how exclusive they are. Indeed. Yes, and I'm offering them for immediate delivery to students. But how does this concern me? I was just getting to that. This is a proposition which requires considerable capital for its development. At the present time, only seven students have asked for Vaders, yet I have estimated that the supply of Vaders, now mellowing out in India, is enough for at least 180,000 students, which means that if we created the demand, why think of the business we could do? When you come right down to it, a Vader, when presented in the right way, can be as catchy as a Q-Pie. Hmm. How much money would you need to start with? Fifty thousand dollars, besides my salary, which would be fifteen thousand dollars outright, plus a bonus of one and a half cents per Vader per student. There will be the cost of advertising in the college catalog, the conducting of a circulating campaign to a selected list of student prospects, and the publication of a promotion organ to be entitled India Inc. Then. Too, of course, there would have to be a commission on gross tuition receipts and a textbook sales and an ample expense account for entertaining the classroom and in my home. Now will you kindly put your name here on the dotted line? Before I guarantee you this money, tell me one thing. What is the real value of these Vedas? They are the quaint quintessence of conservatism and will occupy youthful minds menaced by modernism. I'll sign. Secured by the science of citizenship, any professor would be able to achieve affluence. Fortunes would rise from footnotes, and there would be big money made in bibliography. Coaching from the Sidelines Thanks to the roadside advertisements, driving a car has become as easy as playing a pianola. You just watch the instructions that appear along the edge and regulate your levers and pedals accordingly. Thus, when you see dangerous curve sound respond, you reach instinctively for the button of your electric horn. Later, seeing sharp descent apply eureka non-slippable brake, you comply gracefully. A mere twist of the wrist or dislocation of the ankle does the trick. He that reads may run. Any man who has ever watched an organist pull out stops and push them in again can become a motor virtuoso. Any woman accustomed to following instructions in cutting out a dress pattern can grasp the idea as easily as, when told to, she grasps the lever which operates Bingo's North Polian radiator cooler. It is so simple that it is imbecile. Every peculiarity of the route is heralded. All this little irregularities, its deviations from straightness, its bad declines and sudden uppishness, even the small faults which an easy-going person would overlook, are held up sternly in warning. Dusty corner, raised brizo extension windshield, sandy stretch, spray gears with anti-grit, puddles, apply splashel emergency mudguard. Railroad crossing. Put ear to locomotive detectaphone. Dangerous boulder. Before ramming this, make sure Achilles' collision buffer is properly adjusted. Village speed trap. Apply backfire with ready constable exterminator. Occasionally, as a relief from the faults of the road, its favorable points are dwelt on. Thus, mountain view. Enjoy it through autoflex non-refractory goggles. In general, however, the emphasis is upon the perils of the way, as 
only one mile to Hotel Sokum. Here no specific instructions are given, it being understood that the accessory involved is one's pocketbook, and that the directions are open all the way. The system has one drawback. The signs never fail, yet there is such a thing as trusting them too implicitly. I know a man who, as a result of trying to obey seven signs, telling him to be sure to dine at as many different inns, stripped the lining of his esophagus. And I knew of another man, a timid, earnest, nervous old gentleman, who depended on signs so completely that one day, at a dangerous part of the road, being suddenly confronted with the command, Use Plexo, he fell into a panic. Plexo? Plexo? he muttered in bewilderment. Where is the Plexo lever? I can't find the Plexo button. Something terrible will happen unless I find it. It did. As with trembling fingers he fumbled through the entire outfit of attachments, he forgot to steer, and unluckily ran off the edge of a precipice, so that he did not live to learn that Plexo was a massage cream. Fast and loose. There is no constancy so affecting as that of a faithful button. Friends may be devoted, yet they seek your company partly for the pleasure of it. Dogs may show the uttermost fidelity, but you feed them. But the attachment of buttons is without taint of self. It is pure, spontaneous. This loyalty is the more remarkable when you consider how empty their lives are. The outlook through their buttonholes is but a narrow one. Their daily labor, a mere mechanical buttoning into and out of an uncongenial flap, is deadeningly monotonous. I have seldom known a button whose heart was really in its work. In surroundings so little adapted to the building up of character, they display a staunchness that is akin to stoicism. Indeed, many a button will stick doggedly to an old weather-beaten garment long after the perfidious nap has fled. There are, unfortunately, buttons wanting in probity, deceitful buttons that pretend to be strongly attached to you when detained by but a single thread, irresponsible buttons that fly off at a tangent, immodest buttons of the cloth-covered variety that disrobe in public. But deliberately vicious buttons are rare. The fact is, few buttons would go to the bad, were it not for the heartless indifference of their owners. Too often, a headstrong young button that might easily have been saved, had it been brought up short the moment it showed signs of looseness, is allowed to reach the end of its rope, fall, and be utterly lost. And the dereliction of one may mean the ruin of its family. I was told of a sad case once where an entire clan of brown buttons, dwelling happily together on the front of a coat and waistcoat, polished, distinguished buttons they were, not to be matched anywhere, were cruelly banished because of a single erring member. While well, to neglect buttons is most reprehensible, there is such a thing as showing them too much indulgence. For buttons must not be cuddled. When tied with, they droop. Tender-hearted women, actuated by sympathy, and not realizing the consequences of what they were doing, have been known to pamper buttons. Because a button has a pleasant, open countenance, one of these misguided persons will support it in her costume in idleness. 
she may even surround herself with a retinue of glittering sycophants that never knew a buttonhole great saucer-like hangers-on lolling on their stems brazen braggadocios flashing with insolent militarism and puny silken pettinesses mere pills of buttons often i've been shocked to see a swarm of these drones perched indolently on the show part of a garment while underneath a squadron of industrious hooks and eyes grappled with the work to be done such sights are to thoughtful people almost as depressing as the massacre of helpless shirt buttons by baleful flat-iron our buttons to become effete will they in the course of generations of dolce farniente lose their stamina the signs are ominous the primrose pathology i am laying an ego with the assistance of a so-called analyst i am overhauling my instincts liberating my innate masterfulness just wait till you see my rebuilt personality it's wonderful what the right soko analyst can do to your complexes and your finances my soko is a woman of course male sokos are best for feminine mind patients but any man who needs to have his psychic self revamped should hand over his unconscious to a sympathetic lady soko the attunement is lovelier she can more understandingly separate him from his inhibitions and his dollars my soko and i we have talks by the hour at fifty dollars per we talk about criminals and insane people and how everybody's crazy if they only knew it she explains how that dream i had after eating that stringy welsh rabbit that dream about throwing me size twelve overshoes at the canary proves that i secretly desire to murder uncle alfred and elope with mary garden if i could just commit that homicide and meet mary these annoying conflicts with clara and leave my conscience as serenely blind as my conscience so far uncle and mary are having it out atavistically in my far conscience i must eat some more welsh rabbit before i went to this nerve therapist i had fears but she has cured me she is all nerve i thought there were some things one could not mention to a lady i thought that when visiting a lady even by appointment office hours nine to five one could hardly make certain allusions without incurring a sir leave this house instantly and never let me hear your conversation again but now that i have been initiated into the new freedom i know that the automatic prehensile response is another fifty on my bill so i am learning progressing a new mental day is breaking and so is my bank account done is near but when I get my mind, what will I do with it? I think I'll become a soko myself and take in lady patience. Fightier than the sod. This world would be a far different place if there were peace among pens. As it is, however, every pen wears a drop of ink on its shoulder. Not even the tender ministrations of shamai cloth will soothe its savage heart. It is deaf to sweet reasonableness. Returning drunk from the inkwell, it will smutch the hand that fed it, cast blots upon the fairest names, and ravish virgin sheets of paper. When you try to force it to a more civilized way of behaving, 
and discover it has its points crossed. The pen thus divided against itself will not write. There must be freedom for the black fluid. There must be perfect harmony. Two prongs to a single point. Two parts that meet as one. Disunion is a sign of weakness. I had a pen once whose prongs became estranged. They were egoist. Each followed his individual bent and was determined to make his own mark in his own field. For the sake of appearances, they turned their meals of ink together, but immediately afterward, when pressure was brought to bear upon them, they separated. Yet, when one of them, striving too hard after originality, broke under the strain, his widow was left desolate. More domestic, in an old-fashioned way, is that staunch, blunt family, the Stubbs. They are firm and substantial sort of pens. By people who dislike them, they are called phlegmatic, stodgy, close, stiff-nibbed, and it must be admitted they do lack the sprightliness of the shops. But after all, these unyielding Puritans, with their heavy touch, are more trustworthy than their acute but volatile cousins. For temperament in a pen finds vent in sudden splutterings. The difference in their natures is evidenced by the way they meet obstacles. The stubs, plodding along doggedly, overcome all hazards in the paper, whereas the sharps, tripping nonchalantly, come to grief at the first bunker, and before they get started again, waste several strokes and gouge the course. And when the shops attempt to run the gauntlet of expensive linen stationery, the higher the price, the higher the riches, they get held up at every cable crossing. But there is a kind of paper, smooth, slippery, insidious, that prompts both the shops and the stubs to evil ways. They know they are doing wrong, however, for they are shamed and conceal their tracks, rendering all tracing impossible. It is a great pity that pens are not more consistent about their ink-giving. One moment they are stingy, and the next lavish. Perhaps this may be due to absent-mindedness. Beginning a letter to a crabbed old relative, you say to your pen, Give me a little ink for dear Uncle Jonathan. It ignores the request. You urge again. Still it is thinking of something else. Here, wake up now. You shake it violently. Give me some ink. Why, certainly, it replies effusively. Take a blot. And dear Uncle Jonathan is buried with deep mourning. Haphazard as their outgivings appear to be, I have a theory that they are in reality quite logical. I've noticed that pens spend most ink on things that are worth most. Thus a pen that would grudge to disperse a single minim on a cheap sheet of paper would gladly expend all it has upon a costly embroidered tablecloth, and it finds the fly-leaf of a handsome book, which, if separate from the volume, it would regard as a mere scrap of paper, amazingly absorbing. If it take a fancy to something large and sumptuous such as an oriental rug and yet not have on hand sufficient ink for such an outlay it will appropriate it with a deposit of spot splash 
however little aptitude a pen may have for writing it is sure to display rare skill as a fisherman in the most unpromised inquiry it will catch deep sea monsters that astound you it will spare great flounders of blotting paper and wriggly eels of string it will drag up from the bottom wreckage of forgotten times prehistoric flora and fauna an antique rubber band female tress perhaps of some ink nymph long dead or discharged a tack bent with age a perfectly preserved shoe button a less perfectly preserved mummy of a fly the perseverance of this follower of isaac walton is admirable it will cast patiently again and again without a single dribble and then all at once it will come struggling triumphantly to the surface with the wail of a june-bug it is harpooned whereupon as is the custom with fishermen who write it will make a grand splurge of its catch on paper in order to prevent such piscatorial dippiness pen fanciness have bred the fountain species the latest variety of which is self-spilling pens of this artificially produced species are very nervous they have to be handled with extreme care for example if one of them is held upside down all the ink runs to its head and there's a danger of a hemorrhage its digestive system is poor it regurgitates and bubbles at the mouth the least thing upsets its stomach if you forget to put its cap on even in mild weather it contracts a serious congestion of the throat with the result that the next letter you write proves dry point etching taken all in all pens have a great deal to answer for the record they have left on the pages of history is a black one many a person who has sat down to write something bright and optimistic has been so disillusioned and embittered by his pen that he has ended by hacking a hymn of hate and drooling a dirge of despair which accounts for most of the world's harsh diplomacy and morbid literature even this essay was originally intended to be cheerful enlightenment alas i have found out the awful truth about humanity i never even suspected it till last evening i went along my way cheerfully blindly never guessing that my fellow-men were steeped in evil but now i know my eyes have been opened last night i went to one of those enlightening film dramas that reveal life as it is it was called her blackest sin and it comprised nine reels of terrible truth it was one of those fine moral sermons to which every mother ought to take her son and every niece ought to take her uncle and every step-aunt ought to take her pekingese i only wish my daughter could have seen it but as i haven't any daughter she couldn't have This drama shows how a handsome but thoughtless woman may sink in sin without ever meaning to. Yes, the strange and pitiful part about it is that she really never intended to be a fallen, crime-seared creature. She sins witlessly. She is scenarioed into it. Perhaps she is too anxious to please. She appears at wild cabarets and wears gowns that are cut to the quick not because she desires to of her own accord but because it is expected of her by the audience lack of firmness leads to her undoing she is first pliant 
then supple, then sinuous. She displays too little backbone, and too much. Poor woman, what chance is she amid so many dress suits? Only too late does she learn that stiff bosoms cover none but hard hearts, and that there is no gleam so sinister as that of a silk hat, covering as it does baldness of the baldest sort. Innocent at first, hardly a reel passes before she begins to stop and work her face, just the way the villains stop and work their faces. Of course, being still a modest woman, she does this only in the privacy of a close-up. By the seventh reel, even her high-minded husbands have become afflicted with a taint, is stopping and working his face. And so the drama progresses, growing blacker and more enlightened every minute. I can't be too grateful to the producers of this film for the unflinching way in which they accepted the responsibility of my innocence and warned me. If they had not, I should probably have gone to the end of my days with ever knowing that people were at bottom only smiling criminals. But now, thank goodness, I'm warned, and I'm on my guard. I'm posted on sin. When a man comes up to me and shakes my hand, I'll know he's a hawk looking for a home to break up. And when a woman smiles at me, I'll know she's a vampire. They won't catch me. I'll just watch them surreptitiously when they're off their guard, until I see them working their faces, and then I'll have them. For now I am an expert on evil. That film showed me the thrilling seductions of a life of vice, so that if I am ever confronted by them, I shall be able to recognize them at once, and say, how do you do? And at the end there was one of those solemn moral warnings, such as everybody thinks everybody else is supposed to need, so in future I shall know what to avoid in that line. And this entire transformation of my life cost me only thirty-three cents. Holiday misgivings. When, on Christmas night, I took a private view of the collection of presents I have received, I realized I am a much misunderstood person. I sit down sadly and wonder what I could have done to create such an impression. Is there something queer about me? If so, then wouldn't it have been more tactful, more kind, to have come to me and told me of it, instead of thus brutally proclaiming it to the world? But that is the way people are. They will serenely assume things they wouldn't have the face to mention. It's morbid socks. Half holes and half a disease. The loom that made them must have been degenerate. It is plain they don't never intended to be put on, because the pasteboard document that lurks in the bottom of the box declares they are guaranteed against any sort of wear. On these were esteemed suitable associates for my feet. I have no recollection of sniffling. In public, it heard nine dozen handkerchiefs, an outfit for someone with chronic chorizers. As for the assemblage of pocketbooks, purses, wallets, coin holders, etc., I only hope that after I've paid my holiday bills there'll be enough money left to halfway fill the pocketbook I've already. But the crowd that seems most oppressive is that of the calendars. Am I really so absent-minded as to require seven engagement pairs? Am I so lax about settling my accounts that my butcher and grocer and milkman feel called upon to supply me the means of knowing what day of the month it is? Anything might pass for a calendar, so long as it complies with the law by having a little batch of months attached to the bottom like an appendix, a snapshot of Cousin Gertrude's baby, 
Oh, the juice. I suppose I was expected to give that kid something for Christmas. A pastoral chromo entitled Sharing the Lambs, sent to me by firm of brokers. A picture of a child in a nighty saying its prayers, with the compliments of the Schweiner Beef Packing Company. A hand-tinted but feebly glued print for Paul and Virginia inscribed Jones and Bergfeld Plumbers. One calendar, consisting of a sheaf of large placards, each purporting to exhibit a specimen of female beauty, is so throttled by a silken carp that when February the first arrives, and I attempt to give one of these beauties to flop over in order that I may gaze on the next for a while, the situation proves too tense. The eyelet suddenly splits into an outlet, and the jilted maiden, cast off by her sisters, collapses upon the floor. All of which is most distressing, but no more so than the notion that women seem to have of what a man likes. I shall never forget the pair of slippers that Aunt Josephine bestowed upon me last year. They were what are technically known as mules, but in reality they were a couple of long rafts, each with an arching toe cabin that would have accommodated both feet. The low racing sterns extended so far after my heels that the ladders stood almost amidships. Navigation was difficult. They kept running afoul of each other, so that I would suddenly find my starboard foot partly on the port slipper, and mostly on the floor. Sometimes one of them would dart ahead, several lengths, and capsize, obliging me to turn skipper. No matter how earnestly I lifted their bows, their stern was always dragged. A landsman would have said that my progress resembled pumping a rhapsody on a pianola, or skiing in the Alps. The unreasonableness of these mules reached a climax one morning while I was visiting the Charmondly Browdens, and counted my hostess unexpectedly as of returning from my bath. In the excitement of the moment, both slippers bolted, one performing a spectacular flip-flap, and the other skidding through the balustrade of the stairway and landing below in a globe of goldfish, while I made my escape in a state of pedal nudity. As for the neckties I've received, truly, love is blind. All, all gone, the old familiar facades. Nowadays, when it is hard for the casual observer to distinguish somebody's mother from somebody's jazz baby, it is not to be wondered at that houses as well as humans are disguising their age. Victorian brownstone mansions that later sank to bodding-house seediness, now renew their youth as the Rubens studio, or Haddon chambers. Drab office buildings, yielding to a sudden access of sand, take on new complexions as talcumy white as those that flappers passing by. It would be a tactless and cruel man who would say, I know when that one's cornerstone was laid, or my great-uncle knew that one when it was only three stories high, or it didn't have that corners until its gables began to fall off, or you ought to have seen the stoop it had before they put in the steel braces. Beauty, doctoring to buildings, must have become quite an art. It takes skill to know how to eliminate the dark lines under tired window sills, lift the sagging balconies, reduce protuberant bay windows. Only a trained chisel can remove a superfluous ornament in a way that will guarantee against its reappearance. We are shocked, though, at the brazenly commercial character that certain sedate houses have taken on in the giddier part of town. Buildings that were formerly quiet residences, keeping themselves retiringly back from the bustle, and modestly shielding themselves with brown balustrades, 
now shamelessly come forward as close to the line as they dare meeting the idle stroller halfway not with lowered shades but with broad plate-glass assurance and even displaying scandalous lingerie we cannot but feel that buildings thus bedizened in the effort to keep from being neglected will not command the same reverence that used to be inspired by the mossy old manse or the messy old mill theirs is hardly the age of innocence would the old home seem as homely to you after it had been exterior decorated would it be as dear oh much dearer as the real estate agent will tell you or your own broker my museum i called her plury that is to say i would speak of her by that endearing appellation when she was running along smoothly and seldom missing in either cylinder her real name however was e pluribus unum you see i had wanted an automobile but found that no single make was within my means so i bought plury just as a person who cannot afford beef veal chicken turkey lamb or pork orders hash individually fords buicks overlands perlises simplexes piercers etc were too expensive for me but collectively combined in the form of second-hand plurry i could afford them all at a hundred and thirty-two dollars and fifty cents plurry was a cosmopolitan her rear axle was italian her steering-wheel was french her magneto was austrian and her mud-gods were belgian it is hard to maintain her neutrality for example a german cogwheel that clutched with an english one scarred veterans both of them kept the gearbox in a constant state of friction when such international crashes occurred it was always difficult to find out which one had started the trouble then too among the american-made parts there was much jealousy between those that had come from rival factories the tyres were four different makes each boasting a surface specially patented against skidding each strove so hard to shove the other three into the gutter that all four cavorted about the road in a most unseemly fashion many were the heart-burnings the incompatibilities of temperament the parts thus yoked together whenever these dissensions brought matters to a standstill i would have to get out and apply the monkey wrench of peace plury was hardly a noble car in either appearance or speed yet i was genuinely fond of her her lamps had a wistful look a look as innocent and helpless as that with which poached eggs gaze up at you for they die as for her slowness that made little difference because her speedometer geared presumably for a racing car exaggerated and after all what is speed but a number on a dial while i saw seventy-one registered there i was not disturbed by the fact that bicyclists were passing me i admired her pluck she would chunk along historically accepting other people's dust without complaint and in condition of health that would have prostrated any other machine thoroughbreds do not show the greatest endurance bravely she would drag herself home after a hard afternoon's work with a leak in her radiator and congestion in all her bearings i used to practice vivisection on her taking her part and putting her together in new ways it was a fascinating kind of solitaire solving the problem of what to do on rainy sundays in a few hours' time I could shuffle the parts and deal out an entirely new model. Under my care, Plurry changed her shape with ultra-fashionable frequency. A model that I was particularly interested in trying out was number nine, i.e. the eighth transformation. This was such daring rearrangement that it seemed too wonderful to be true. But it worked, and thrillingly, 
and this farm flurry exceeded all her previous speed records. A speedometer dial registered 87, and a swarm of gnats had hard work keeping up with us. Proceeding at this reckless pace, we approached a hilly curve marked Danger Drive slowly. It changed gear. Cogs emitted a grating, crunching sound, as of quartz in a storm crusher, and then subsided. I got out to view their death grapple. But I had no sooner set foot upon the ground than the roar of an infuriated klaxon startled me so that I leaped clear aside into the ditch. In that instant a huge Fiat, armed with a brazen fender, swung around the curve and rammed Plurry in the radiator. Plurry splattered like a charlotte russ hit by a sledgehammer. The road and neighboring fields were full of her. The livery chauffeur of the Fiat got out and began to brush the dust in front of his car. A frightened fat man picked himself up from the floor of the tonneau and called to me, Are you badly hurt? No, I replied, I'm all right, I think. Good, he cried in a tone of great relief. Then let's settle the damages at once, for I don't want this thing to get into the papers. With a shaky hand, he drew out a checkbook. What was the value of your car? I hesitated. Would you consider five thousand sufficient indemnity to close the whole matter? Personal injuries, property damages, and everything? I considered it, and after he had gone, I fondly stooped and kissed Plurry's tin remains. Armchairs and art. As a person who frequently sits, I should like to know why there are so many uncomfortable chairs. Why is it that people who are apparently mild and kind-hearted will foster in their homes, at their very firesides, chairs of the most insidious cruelty? Why will dear old ladies cherish these household monsters, festooning them with ribbons and fancy-work? Of course I realize that every chair represents some furniture-maker's theory of beauty and comfort, but every lump, ridge, and crook is supposed to have its aesthetic or anatomic reason. What our objective is being tortured for heresy, just because I am physically unable to agree with these theories. An innocent-looking willow rocker that stands invitingly on my aunt's veranda is built on the assumption that the human back is in the shape of an S. Perhaps the Apollo Belvedere may have a back like that, but not I. Mine, sitting in that rocker, feels more like the dying gladiators. I am fond of nature, and I have the greatest respect for her. But my joy in things sylvan does not extend to rustic chairs. To parlor additions of the woodpile, they are certainly ingenious. But their surface, which resembles that of a corduroy road, is hardly adapted to sitting purposes. Then, too, there are always a few nails in evidence, and I can never resist picking at the loose shreds of bark on the arms, with the result that, before I know it, I am sure to skin quite a large place, and then feel mortified. The city cousin of the rustic chair is the high-backed carved seat. This has a lion's head that catches you at the nape of the neck, and a couple of scrolls for your shoulder-blades. The seat itself is a huge slab of wood that feels like adamant. This chair looks best against the wall, and the fact that it weighs about fifty pounds is one reason why it generally stays there. Another massive chair is the Morris. It indeed took the imagination of a poet to conceive of sitting on a folding bed that was only half-folded. When I get into one of these contrivances, its bed-like quality makes me so drowsy that I almost fall asleep, and its chair-like quality keeps me awake, with the result that I remain in a semi-comatose condition, which I arouse myself occasionally to climb out and shift the rod to another notch. A variety that is not to be relied on, much less sat on, is the loop-the-loop -loop species, which is found in the cheap restaurants and at amateur theatricals. 
This consists of a four-legged tambourine backed by two loops of wood. The outer one in the shape of a Moorish arch, and the inner one in the shape of a tennis racket. Exactly half of these chairs in existence have racks upon them to hold your head and gloves, whereas the other half have no such racks. So that exactly half the times I sit on one of these chairs and put my hat and gloves under the seat, those articles fall disconcertingly to the floor. A kind of rocker much in vogue is a medley of young banisters, a sort of improvisation on a turning lathe. When new, this chair emits a peculiar creaking sound, and the cause for a few weeks it loosens up to a quite supple, so that in rocking the various rods perform a complicated piston motion. This process continues till gradually the chair reaches the stage where at every rock it comes apart and puts itself together again, or almost together. Best parlor chairs run to extremes of fatness and leanness. They are either pampered, slender, gilded things, mere wisps of chairs, that offer a most precarious support, or fat, puffy, tufted affairs, satin feather beds on sticks, no, not feather beds either, but they have twanging springs that tune up every time you sit on them. The colors of this latter variety may be endured in winter, but when summer comes it is necessary to suppress them the linen slips. One interesting species, the elevated rocker, is nearly extinct. This curious chair, able to skid on rollers like any other, has a little rocking department upstairs, so that it can wobble to and fro on its track without doing the least harm in the world. I could speak of the personal idiosyncrasies of chairs, such as the trick some of them have of shedding their casters at the slightest provocation. I could tell of the rocker that insisted on sidling away from a reading lamp, or the chair that, while not supposed to be a rocker at all, teetered diagonally on its northeast and southwest legs. But the chair I am now sitting on has given me such a cramp that I shall have to get up and take a walk. End of part four.